so I'm a part of a, of a home church network uh, out in Contra Costa right now. And oftentimes, one of the things we miss about kind of a bigger gathering is really just the way we can worship together. And uh, I forgot how great it is to worship with CLC. I've always just cherished that time when I came to your church in Oakland and uh, you always had a, a great worship. And uh, man, that second song, beautiful, that's so powerful. I love it when our hearts break for God. And uh, I love it when we we sense uh, a stirring inside of us that music can bring out. When you listen to the radio, you know, there's those love songs and oldies and all that stuff, and it does something. But when you sing of God, there's something that touches way deeper, something about the way we were created, something about how we were designed. And it comes out when we worship corporately, um, but also when we, when we worship uh, as individuals. So I just want you guys to don't. You know, when I was sitting back there, I was thinking, it's so easy for this day to be just another day. It really is. It, it, it's just another day in a schedule. It's so easy. We talked about it last night that uh, we just continue in life uh, as if it will just go on forever. And so we set these goals for our life. You know, we set goals as 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 parents for our young children, we set goals for them to finish school, for college, for life, for, you know, for work, for marriage, for children. It never ends. It's a, it's a constant looking forward to something that we have scheduled. And it is so hard for us to stop and just enjoy the day that God has given us, regardless of what tomorrow brings. We have today and we, we worship him. So I want you to think of today as something very, very special that he's granted us. To breathe the air that he gave us breath to breathe today. Because it's not guaranteed. But we always think, well, we've had a lot of days of air in the past, so I'm sure we'll have some in the future. But if we don't stop and relish it, uh, we miss something very, very beautiful. And that's really what I wanted to go over this morning. I, my passage is going to lead up into the Lord's Supper. It's going to lead up to communion because it's actually talking about manna. Um, and uh, manna is kind of a unique thing in scripture because it only appeared during the wilderness. It hasn't appeared since then, uh, and it never appeared before then, but it only came in that period of time. And maybe a lot of people don't realize this, but manna existed for 40 years the entire time they were in wandering in the wilderness, they had manna. Forty years is a long time that every single day there was manna on the ground. And so it was a miracle that people saw every single day. And I imagine if you grew up in that time period, it would just feel like a natural occurrence, almost like breathing air, that it taken for granted that we have air to breathe. They woke up, if you grew up in those 40 years, there was just always manna. And then sometime shortly after Moses dies, when they're at the border of Canaan, the manna disappears and it never returns. And so 
there's something very beautiful about it because early on when he shares about this in chapter 16 of Exodus, he says it really was a test. And so let's look back at that and see exactly what he was talking about. If you have a Bible, turn uh, to Exodus 16. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the manna and... Um, There, there are there are patterns in Scripture, and one of the things that uh, one of the things I was kind of talking with um, with Calvin about, kind of leading into this retreat, was one of the things that I've been kind of uh, just studying was this idea of dominion on Earth, about God's plan for us here on Earth, is about the Garden of Eden, things like that, and I don't know if you guys realize this, but there's these these patterns that constantly repeat it. So people who who study these things, they call them topography or things repeating types. Uh, and so Christ is a re- repeating type of the past. And there, there's there's correlation in the New Testament with the Old Testament. So the bread of life in the New Testament is similar to the manna of the Old Testament. In in a similar fashion, we can look at the Garden of Eden. As a, as a model, really, of the temple. I don't know if you've ever caught this. There's not much we know about the Garden of Eden either, other than that there was these rivers that flowed from it. There was four rivers. Two of them don't exist anymore. Two still, but they don't converge. But in, in Genesis 3, where it talks about the garden, it, it seems to say these rivers are sourced from there. They, they water the trees there, but then they move out. So it seems like Eden was a plateau, but there was something else kind of unique about Eden. Remember when, um, y- y- remember when they were cast out of Eden, they put a, a cherub, right? They put a, 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 an angel. Where did they put that angel? It was on the east side of Eden, wasn't it? Remember that? They put it on the east side of Eden. And I, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but that said, well, what about the other, what about the other <laughs> three sides, you know? Right, if you put a, a guard there, I'm just going to go the west side or the north or the south. I mean, I'm still going to get to that fruit or whatever was good there. But there seems to be that there was only one way into Eden. Do you understand? That's why you, that's why you only had the one guard. And then if you look forward into their journey in the wilderness, you realize that they had to build um, a tabernacle, a tent, and then later on, uh, they built a temple. But in each case, God gave them directions on what that tabernacle should look like. He gave them instructions on what that temple should look like. Because the temple was actually the model of the tabernacle. But why was this tabernacle so interesting? Well, because it modeled Eden. The entrance, we know, was on the east side of the tabernacle. Jesus came into Jerusalem in the east gate. When he went out on the night that he was to be betrayed, he left out the east gate. And he, so, so, so there's these repeating pictures that are not there by accident. And as, as we, as we follow this and we see this, there's this sense that the further we leave the garden of Eden, the further east we go, the further away from God we go. And so as people are 
are, are banished from Eden, they move. Remember when, uh, when Cain was cast out? It says he went further east. You know, so, so the more you go, remember the, the wise men that came to see Jesus? They came from the east to the west to see Jesus. So there's a sense that the further east you go, this direction, the further you are from God, the further you're away, uh, the more distance you are. So this, this repeating pattern in scripture is found throughout the place. So as we start to see these things, they're, they're really lessons for us to kind of how we, how we journey through uh, life. So let me, let me open this time in prayer. I know we kind of jumped right into this. Oh God, I, just, I was just so happy to worship you this morning. Lord, it was so good to think about you and your sacrifice and your love for humanity. And uh, Lord, I, I really don't want this just to be another day. I don't want this to be another worship time, just another session. I, I want us to be so attuned with who you are that something beautiful about eternity is revealed into us. Uh, something about the purpose you have in life. Lord, you have a, a magnificent plan to save the world. And uh, you've asked the church to be a part of that. And Lord, I just ask that we would take that seriously, that we would take uh, our commissioning seriously in our role. Lord, help us to rely on you. We cannot do this on our power. We cannot do this under our own strength. It is only through your provision Oh, it's only through your absolute spirit that we're able to love this world. Lord, help us to point people to you. And not only in this church, not only at this camp, Lord, but gosh, everything that we do. Let us live and breathe you. Let us, let us be worshipful all the time, Lord. And I just thank you in Christ's name. So if you have your Bibles and you're looking at Exodus, um, there's a couple of accounts in the Bible that talk about manna. Um, there's, there's one in Numbers and there's this passage in Exodus. And it's alluded to in the New Testament in a couple of places as well. Um, but in this section, it really talks about the purpose of the manna. Um, it seemed like the quail came later, but in this particular case, it talks about the quail also being able uh, to be available in the evenings. But let me, let me give you a little bit of background before we go in here because I've been talking about this topography. I'm talking about these repeating patterns. I want you to, to realize that when the people left Egypt, they left Egypt after 400 years of slavery. So talk about knowing manna for 40 years. Can you imagine our country's just over 200 years old? These people were slaves for 400 years to Egypt. They're, they knew nothing else. They, they couldn't even imagine anything else. You're, you're talking about 10 generations that grew up in slavery. That means you couldn't even think back how far back that they were under this, this other rule. And um, it is this time that they, even though they were slaves, maintained their identity as Jewish people as Hebrews. But the Egyptians around them, they were polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. And so there's this, there's this thing that they had to break free of. They had to break free of this yoke of this, this pantheon of gods. 
And so really the 10 plagues that come uh, on Egypt and on Pharaoh really was a destruction of that. It was a picture of that because you could see how they worshiped the animals and the sun and the, and the waters and the Nile and everything. And those were the actual plagues that Moses used. So it was a destruction of the belief system of Egypt that finally uh, allowed Pharaoh to say, oh, just get out of here. And they walked out of there. They walked. They, weren't, they, they didn't run. They, they didn't have to fight. They walked out of Egypt until Pharaoh changed his mind, and then they had to kind of pick up the pace a little bit. But, but, but think about what happens. They, they leave Egypt, and, you know, the Bible says they, they were able to take the gold and silver and the jewelry from the Egyptians. They just gave it to them. They go, okay, good. And they started to leave. The Egyptian army, all of a sudden, Pharaoh cha- has a change of heart and chases after them. They're scared. They get to the border of the Red Sea. The sea splits open. They cross over. They cross over and they celebrate because the waters came and drowned the Egyptian army. The strongest army of that day and age completely drowned and they did nothing. And the Bible says that that Miriam celebrated and she took out a tambourine and just just got excited because they recognized who God was. I am often perplexed about these people because in Hebrews it says that they didn't have faith. They said that don't let your faith be that of the Israelites. And I said, man, what are you, what are you saying? They, they left... Egypt, they crossed through the Red Sea, they wandered in the wilderness, and yet they seem faithful to me. They they followed the pillar, they followed the you know the cloud. They they went through all this and followed Moses, but yet the Bible says, Don't let your faith be like theirs. So I so I'm trying to wonder what is the difference between what they believe and what we should believe. And it and it really has to do with kind of preparing to enter Canaan, right? It's, it's that entering of this daunting land where there's giants, where they no longer um, want to go in. They, were, they, they had faith to escape. They had faith to leave something dangerous. It's, it's like if you're hanging on a mountain and you're going to fall, you got faith. for <laughs> You believe in God. God, I, please rescue me. I believe you're real. I believe, just rescue me. And, and you have this faith to be rescued. And so when God somehow miraculously gets you out of that situation, he says, well, now, now I want you to do something for me. Now I want you to go to Ethiopia and, I don't know, uh, you know help build some wells. And then we're saying, well, yeah, maybe. Let me, let me set my life up in a certain way, and then eventually I'll go. I, I, no, this is, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being critical. I'm just thinking it's funny how we have faith to escape things, but not faith to enter new things. It's so, so I think this is the difference between the kind of faith that God calls us to. And so that, let's, let's, let's look at the manna, because I think the manna 
is, is kind of a, a cool picture of this for us. Um, listen, listen to what this manna did. Uh, let's go back uh, to the beginning of chapter 16. In verse 3, the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the, by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around with pots of meat and we ate the food as we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Down in verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So this whole thing was a, was a setup. The people, the people griped. They, they so easily forget the blessings of God and start thinking back, even in the oppressive situation, how, how they at least had food there. And so God says, okay, well, I'll give them food, and they won't even have to work for it. I'll give them meat, too, in the evenings, and they won't have to work for it. And so this starts to happen, and he says to them something kind of neat. He says to them, here, here, here's, the, here's the cool thing about manna, or the unique things about manna. Manna, as far as we know, was this kind of wafery thing that you could ground it up, and you could make cakes out of it. You could also eat it raw, and it tasted like a wafer with honey. I don't know. Uh, you know, and they said that when you baked it and made it into like a flour, and then you put it in the oven, it tasted like cakes made with oil, and they made it sound really delicious in the Bible, you know? And so it was, it was kind of a unique thing, and it was always just there and always just available. You know, the manna was this thing that just appeared that you could eat. You didn't have to cook it, but you could. But it was a crazy thing that if you tried to get too much of it, the next day would just rot. And I was just thinking, you know, is there anything kind of like that? You know, and uh, at, at our office, if we leave food out, the ants come the next day for sure, right? And I was just thinking, man, that's why we are so careful never to leave any food out because we've left food out. And sure enough, the ants just know. They're just there. And I go, it's kind of like that. I mean, it's just like you leave anything out, you're not going to be able to eat it the next day. It's just going to be covered with ants, and you're going to be miserable for the first couple hours where you're trying to clean everything up. But this manna would rot like that. Okay, now, so, so here's the amazing thing about it. Manna wouldn't rot on the sixth day. Manna wouldn't rot on the Sabbath. Isn't this crazy? Think about this. Every single day, if you gathered more than you needed for the day, they said it was an omer, and uh, it's, I don't know, maybe a jar full, right? And so it's, it's some, somewhere I read it was like 3.6 liters, which is roughly a little less than a gallon, right? So that's a lot, but... Maybe it was in the kind of wafer form before they smashed it. I was just thinking that's a lot of food for a person. But, but I digress. So uh, what was I even saying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so this manna, if you bought it and you, and you, you ate it that day, is fine. You're good. You try to get the stuff for tomorrow, man, it was – you could gather for other family members. 
So if your brother was sick or, you know, your cousin was just, you know, exhausted, you know, you could gather for them and they would have enough for themselves, but you could only eat that day's food. You could not gather for two days, except on the Sabbath. So before the Sabbath, you could gather twice as much. And on the day of the Sabbath, the food would not rot. This is incredible. Do you understand how weird that is? Because it's like I choose a certain day, I can leave a donut on my desk, and the ants won't come the next day. That, to me, blows my mind that every single day, the ants would know to come. But on the Sabbath, I'd leave it out there. I'd just leave Doritos everywhere, and it would be fine. It, it, was, it was a phenomenon that they saw every single day. The, the either the, the rotting or the non-rotting, it was a miracle. They saw it every single day for 40 years. I often wonder if we saw things as miraculous as this, would that drive us, would the world be driven closer to God? And I guess my conclusion is probably not because this happened and it didn't draw the people closer to God. They still lacked the faith to enter the promised land. Remember that story in, um, in 1 Kings uh, about the widow at Zarephath. Also an amazing story. In, in 1 Kings, I'm just going to go there quickly. In 1 Kings, uh, Elijah's just starting his ministry. He's been fed by ravens. There's a drought in the land. He's just sitting by the brook, and birds bring him food. Super cool. And then he says, but God says, no, and you go find this woman, and she's going to feed you. And then... Uh, uh, you know, I'll give you more instructions later. So he goes and he finds this widow, and sure enough, she's there. God's also talked to her and says, hey, there's a prophet coming. When he comes, do whatever he asks. So when Elisha gets there, the first thing he says to her says, uh, hey, can you, uh, can you make me something to eat? There's a famine, right? He goes, can you make me something to eat? And her response is, it's kind of grumpy. She goes, I'm gathering sticks here. I got a little bit of flour, a little bit of, little bit of oil. I'm going to go home. I, I was going to make one last meal, and my son and I are going to die. <laughs> That's what she says, right? So, so she's all prepared. It wasn't a very happy meeting with Elijah. You know, happy prophet coming into town. They say, hey, can you make me something to eat? And she goes, all right, God told me this was going to happen. Um, all right, I, I only got this little bit. You know, you can see I'm just gathering some twigs. You know, I'm just going to eat this last meal with my son. And I said, but before you do that, can you make me a cake? <laughs> you know, he says, and so this woman just has to go and do this thing because God told her to do it. So there's at least a recognition of who God is. She goes and she makes this cake and gives it to Elijah. And then uh, Elijah promises her that if you do this, there'll be enough uh, oil and flour for you every day and the miracle of that passage is that every single morning she got up she opened her cupboard and empty jars were filled that means there was no flour there was no oil every morning she would go back and it would be filled and she would have enough for that day 
right? And so this was a miracle every single day. And we don't know how much longer the drought lasted. But the sad, sad thing about this passage is that this wasn't enough for her. Even though this miracle happened to every single morning, uh, she was still kind of kind of grumpy. In fact, um, down to verse 17 of chapter 17 in 1 Kings, it says, Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the home became ill. This was the son that was going to die with her after that last meal. Um, she said to Elijah, What have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? It's just breaking his heart, right? Why would you say this to me? I, I've been giving you food every day. She goes, give me your son. Elijah replied. He took him in his arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid, uh, laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to God. He, he prays to God. He goes, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy upon this widow that I am staying with by causing her son to die? It's just compassion for her, right? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let the boy's life return to him. The Lord cried, uh, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house and he gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Listen to this. Then the woman said to Elijah, now... Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Why did it take so much? That's what I'm, I, I, that's the question. I just think, and I, I, would, I would love to see that miracle in my cupboard every morning. I, w- I would bring friends over. I said, watch this. Okay, remember last night there was nothing here? You know, and just kind of show them. You go, yeah, God, right? God doesn't know what. Go ahead, use it, use it up. And then we'll check it out tomorrow. I mean, to me, it would be all this. I would get a film crew over. You know, I, I'd get it on YouTube. I would do all these things because this was this miracle that happens right before me. I, everybody in my neighborhood would know about it, you know. And I, to me, I would say, wow, this would draw people to God. This, this is the thing that would cause people to believe. But even that wasn't enough for her. Even the manna wasn't enough for the people. It took something more for her. She said, what have you brought this misery? Did you point me to my sin? Did you just prolong my life so I could die now? Now my son, she was going to die anyway. And yet all she could think about, her perspective, was this perspective from, from, from her point of view. I, I think we forget that one of the things that God did when he died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, was he was giving us back the perspective of God. Do you, do you realize how precious that is? Um, when, when we look at the account in Genesis, when we look at the account in Genesis of the fall of man, men and women, mankind, it's... It was an interesting conversation with the serpent because the serpent says you will be like God and know good and evil. I've always thought it was, I always thought it was a lie early on when he said this. 
But in actuality, the serpent was being very honest. He was saying, you're going to view the world kind of like the perspective God views the world. So God sees the world, God sees people in a certain way. If you eat of this fruit, you won't no longer see the world the way God sees the world. You'll see the world from your perspective. So in a way, you are like God in that you will own your perspective. You will own the way you see your outlook. Remember how they were naked in the Garden of Eden, right? Well, they ate of the fruit, and the first thing that happens is as they said they realized they were naked. Remember that? Well, why is that? They were naked to start with. Why, why is this important now? Well, because when you have God's vision, you don't see people through your vision. You see people through God's vision. God looks at us, and he sees beauty, and he sees spirit. And he sees us as individuals, and he sees our needs, and, he's, and he loves us. And so when Adam and Eve were in the garden the way God had designed life to be, they saw life the way God saw life. And they cared and had dominion and cared for the things that God cared for. But when they ate the fruit, suddenly they lost that. And now they saw the world through their eyes, a selfish perspective. And so the, the nakedness of each other all of a sudden becomes, oh, you're naked, you know? And, it, and so there's this switch of looking at the world through God's eyes to looking at the world through their eyes. Now you fast forward through all this Old Testament stuff to this manna, this wilderness, this testing, and then you come to Christ. Well, Christ died so that his spirit, so the comforter's spirit can come to us and we can see life again. Through God's eyes. So we have that ability now. Do you understand what that means? When he died on the cross, he returned the design of the Garden of Eden back to us. But with value. Okay, my, my point is this. This journey that the people went through was to bring value to the Spirit of God. When you are in the Garden of Eden and you look at the world through God's eyes, you do not value that perspective. You don't know anything else. It's just the perspective you have. And so things can tempt you, like a serpent saying, well, you want to you know stuff? Like God knows stuff? Try this. You go, well, I guess so. What's, what's the difference? And so, you, so, so you, they tried it. And so God says, do you realize what happens when you do that? Now your life is selfish. Now you war against each other. Now you are selfish. You fight. You're jealous. You're eager to, to put others down. You, you live your life with your goals in mind. And God says, it's because you've lost the perspective of God. And this idea that God could somehow give it back, but it cost him. It cost him his son. Now we have value in having God's spirit in us. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is so important. This is the central truth of Christianity. The vision that God gave us, the spirit of God, allows us to live a life as his hands and feet, but to live a life the way God intended us to be. Now, we still have our Adam spirit, just like Adam and Eve had the ability to, to be tempted but we also have the spirit of God in us. You can look at people differently. You can choose to live 
and look through your human eyes at your neighbor, uh, at, at a homeless man on the street, or as somebody who wants to do wrong or hurt you. Or you can look at those individuals through God's perspective by living and tapping into the spirit of God. Tomorrow we'll talk a little bit more about what that means to lean into God. But, but the idea is that there is this, this change of perspective that comes from these events. Um, we, we have ultimate power through the spirit of God. It is God's power, but just like Israel was tainted in his time in the wilderness, it takes time you could be rescued physically from Egypt, but it takes longer to be rescued mentally from Egypt. 400 years is a long time of tradition. And so the mental slavery had to be broken, and that's why there was a generation that died. Okay, now, I know I'm going all over the place, but follow me on this. This is very, very, very important. If we do not have something catalytic in our life that changes the, not just the physical, but the spiritual side of us, the, this, I have an aunt, and you know, I keep talking about aunts, but I have a, like a real aunt. <laughs> I have, I didn't, I didn't get a pet after they ate my donuts. So I have this aunt who, um, if, okay, so some of you guys will have these aunts, and maybe some of you guys will have relatives like this, maybe it's you guys, so. She's a hoarder, okay, and, uh, um, Okay, so I know it's so funny <laughs> because I know a lot of Asians are hoarders. Okay, so, uh, so I, I have this aunt who's a hoarder. Okay, now don't get me wrong. <clears throat> She's awesome, right? But she just won't throw away plastic bags. She just, she'll keep everything from every restaurant she's ever been at, you know. If they have extra napkins, she has them, right? You guys know who these people are, right? You guys know people like this. Listen, and we can be quick to judge them, but did you know that uh, sociologists believe that this is triggered by a mechanism? It's, it's triggered by a sense that they probably at one time were in poverty or their family was in poverty. That there was a time when they were scarce, and because of that, it puts a pattern in their, or, or, or they're usually maybe an older sibling or something, where there's a sense they need to prepare for scarcity. They need to prepare for a time where there won't be. And so there's this sense that, yeah, I, 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 you know, I could throw away that napkin that's half used, or we might be able to reuse it you know, at some crazy catastrophic time where the world ends and everybody's short of napkins, right? And so, so that's, that's the mindset. It's weird, but there was, a, there was something that caused that thinking is my point, right? Um, my, my wife was adopted, okay? So she was adopted when she was uh, a young child. She, <clears throat> she has a sense that she always has to serve people, you know, so that she's, she's constantly you know, wanting, having to feel like she's the hostess. She does not like to be served. She constantly wants to serve. You guys know people like this too. But it probably comes from a sense that she felt abandonment at times and feels that she needs to constantly win approval, win 
uh, have people not leave her. So, so my, my point is, I, I think that if we understand where people come from and the events in their life, we can better understand why their behavior is the way they are. We may be quick to judge them from kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a brief uh, exposure to them because of their behavior. But if you look deep enough, there's a reason for that. And it's exactly the same thing with these people who left Egypt. They had this pattern in their life of being slaves. They had being, you, as a slave, your master feeds you. You work hard, but your master f feeds you. And so you want to escape that. But you have this pattern of things being provided for you. And it's very, very difficult for them to break. And so this idea of having this extraordinary faith, when, when they left and they went into the wilderness, God didn't give them a map. He didn't give them a map. What did he give them? He says, look up. Look to the cloud. Look to the, look to the pillar. He says, look up. Don't look down. Look up to God. But they couldn't do that because they had this map, this pattern in the past. And so they had to have this generation die in the wilderness for a generation that would look up to God. And so you had Joshua lead in this generation that trusted and looked up towards God. And so we have the same thing that happens with the catalysts of Christ on the cross for us, for our generation. That's why we go back to the Lord's stuff. That's why we go back to the Lord's table. It's this idea that if we do not see this event as changing old patterns, then we're liable to fall right back into them. That's why you have to sing worship songs. That's why you have to meet together. That's why you have to worship and you have to think of God's things. You have to break the patterns of this world. You have to break the patterns that you've developed all week at work. And you have to refocus back on God. And if the more you can do that, the more we're on this journey that God intends us to be. Interesting thing. We're going we're gonna to do the Lord's Supper here real quick. But before we get into that, I just want to throw, throw something out at you. Did you know that in the Greek where the, uh, okay, there, there's this, when I was talking about topography, I was talking about these patterns in the Old Testament. Well, Matthew's gospel is laid out in these same types of patterns. You know, just like they had gone through the Red Sea, they had left Egypt and gone through the Red Sea. Matthew's account is that Jesus' parents escaped to Egypt. And it was only when it was safe that they left Egypt. And then the next thing in chapter 2, he's what? He's baptized, the Red Sea, right? And then after that, he goes into the wilderness in chapter 4, right? And then in, 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 the, in the Moses account, they go to Sinai and the mountain of God. And in Matthew 5, Matthew says he preaches the sermon on the mound, right? So, so, so you see these repeating patterns throughout the scriptures? It's, it's very beautiful to watch. And so that's why don't focus on one part of the Bible. Find time to read the whole Bible to, to pick out these beautiful patterns. But my, my point is this. So at this point, um, he begins to give them the Lord's Supper. I mean, the... Uh, the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we say this one verse uh, in the prayer, and we don't really think too much about it, but it's give us today our daily bread, right? Did you know in the Greek, that is actually give us today tomorrow's bread? You know, it's actually, that's the, that's the literal translation, is give us today tomorrow's bread. It's not give us today today's bread. It's give us tomorrow's bread. Why? 
because it was about the Sabbath. It was about the rest in Christ. Just like I was telling you about the manna that wouldn't rot the night before the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath, it was the same thing in this prayer to God and say, God, give us tomorrow's bread. Give us the bread where we can rest in you. Give us this sense that now it's, it's this future that we're, we're anticipating this power of God. It's actually, it's actually this beautiful pattern that we see that we've caught from the Old Testament. So I, I want you to be excited about this vision that we have of God. And as we transition now to communion, I want you guys to think what this actually signifies. This is the catalyst reminder of how we're supposed to live. This is the thing that's powerful enough to erase your history, to erase your, or your orphan history or your hoarder history. It erases everything because you start with something new. And so if you want to rely on your past, you're just like Israel, remembering the past. But if you want to rely on God and the future, you take a look at the communion and the sacrifice of God, and that begins this journey for you. So let me, let me, let me close this time in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. Um, Lord, I just feel like there's so much I want to go through, and I rush. And uh, Lord, my prayer is that even in my fumbling and, and page flipping, that, that your truth came out, that somehow, Lord, I, if, I just, I just want your word to sink deep in our heart. I want this truth that somehow jumbled that would just that that we would understand it. And we want we want to serve you. We want to honor you. We want to love you. We want to we want to be the people of God that have the faith to enter the promised land. We don't want to be like the ones that had these crazy patterns. Lord, help us look at the cross. Know what that means we have the vision of God again. Would we live each day with that, with that hopeful thought that we could see the world the way you see, that we would see people the way you see? Lord, we just thank you in Christ's name.